BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Sunday's closing ceremonies at the Tokyo Olympics capped off what has been described as the strangest and loneliest game so far, held in the middle of a global pandemic. As always, it was the athletes who brought the magic, meaning, and inspiration. In this hour, we'll look back at the games just passed, the triumphs, the tensions, and with the Paralympics in less than two weeks, whether the International Olympic Committee will begin to give athletes the respect they truly deserve. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What has been a defining feature of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics for you? The massed athletes and empty stands were a constant reminder of the pandemic dangers that loomed over a host nation with a slow vaccine rollout. The Games also gave rise to debates over athletes' identities, uniforms, and safety. But there was magic, too. World records smashed, medals shared, tears of joy. With closing ceremonies this past Sunday, we look back on the moments that stood out to you, and you can share yours always by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also tell us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, and you can email us forum at kqed.org. Let me tell you who is joining us. Amira Rose Davis is Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. Professor Davis, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, happy to be back here. Also with us is David Wharton, sports reporter for the Los Angeles Times, covered 2020 Olympics in Tokyo for the LA Times. David Wharton, glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks very much. Matoko Rich is with us, Tokyo Bureau Chief for the New York Times, also covered the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo for the New York Times. Matoko Rich, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. I'll start with you and start backwards a bit with closing ceremonies. Matogo Richards, light display of the Olympic rings, the, the playful park scenes were highlights of the event, but it was also described as relatively muted since so many athletes weren't there. What were your impressions? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that light show because we couldn't actually see it in the stadium. We had to look <laughs> right. at the screens. Um, and so that to me kind of crystallized what the Olympics was in a lot of ways. I mean, it always is a made for television event, but this time more than any other, because I'm sure as David can also um, resonate, uh, there was no one there. Um, so we were often in totally empty stadiums. I mean, I went to a soccer game, um, you know, in a stadium meant for 68,000 people and they were piping in uh, the sound of recorded cheers and applause, but it was really eerie um, and kind of a little bittersweet because for the soccer players who are playing their hearts are out and they're not actual cheering fans in the stands. I went to tennis, uh, table tennis, and you could hear every thwack of the ball and the grunt of the athletes. But again, looking around this empty gymnasium and sometimes I would be watching it and you kind of have this weird feeling like maybe you were watching training because nobody was there. It didn't seem like a real games. Mm. Um, so that part was a little bit sad. Yeah. And also a little bit sad to see the park scenes, not because they aren't lovely and such a great feature of Tokyo, but 
but the fact that the Olympians really couldn't see that side of Tokyo. Totally. I mean, um, obviously for the people who actually were able to come, um, they weren't allowed to go out certainly for the first 14 days. So a lot of what they were seeing in the stadium, um, uh, you know, acted out was something they never got to see live, but also there are hundreds of thousands of people who had planned to come. They had tickets, the international spectators were banned. Um, the cohorts from all of the different countries was vastly reduced. So people couldn't bring as many people as they normally would. I mean, people were, you know, jumping out of the pool or at the end of the track, looking at video screens to wave of their friends and family back home. They weren't in the stands. Um, so I definitely felt that wistfulness. And also for Japan, um, for any host city, one of the reasons why they want to host these events is because it's an opportunity. It's like a huge kind of PR exercise, right? Normally that you get to showcase your town and all these people come and you hope that it'll have this kind of bounce um, in the immediate moment of the Olympics for all the hoteliers and the tourist attractions. And then also afterwards that people are seeing all these scenes on TV and that they'll be um, wanting to come to the country. And Japan didn't really get that opportunity with yeah. these games. Uh, David Wharton, curious about how you experienced the games as well, what it was like to be there and, and what stood out to you in terms of the adaptations for an Olympics in the middle of a global pandemic? Well, you know, I, this is my seventh games. And I think as Matoko said, I, I was telling everyone it was like an Olympics in a laboratory. It mm -hmm. felt very sterile. And, um, you know, I think I think the athletes wanted to be there uh, to a man and to a woman. They said that they were kind of grateful. These these athletes, most of them don't make a lot of money over the course of their careers and they don't get many chances to shine on that kind of international stage. So they really wanted the chance to compete. But I, I don't think there was any doubt that there's a certain um, there's certain adrenaline and electricity that's provided by fans that wasn't there. And so uh, despite the fact that there were some great performances, maybe not quite as many as we would have expected and, and that muted feeling among the athletes, uh, I think, you know, for the most part, it seemed that everyone adapted to the regulations fairly well. There were reports of athletes and journalists who were breaking the rules, but they seemed... <laughs> pretty you know few and far between um there was the the japanese organizers organizers ran a, a pretty strict program there and we were kept in the bubble as they call it um which was was sad but it was also i think a little bit safer when you look at the final numbers um i believe there were about less than 450 uh positive test cases in, in inside the bubble and the vast majority of those belonged to contractors uh, who were coming in and out doing work and were living in the community. Mm -hmm. And um, and the games escaped, I think, one of their greatest fears, which was, you know, having a big star uh, yank for his, from uh, his or her event just before the final because of a positive test or or maybe even having to to uh, to postpone or cancel a big event uh, because of positive tests. And we saw that back here in the U.S. during the NFL season and Major League Baseball and, and the Olympics escaped without that. Yeah. Amira Rose Davis, hearing David and Matoko talk about, about what they observed and experienced while there and what the athletes were also dealing with as well, it, it makes the athletes' achievements even that much more incredible. I mean, they didn't have the usual family supports, the ability to decompress, the constant concern about... COVID-19. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, but also given all of that, what were some of those incredible moments that stood out to you? Yeah, certainly. I, I um, uh, Matoko has a great piece of recapping um, the closing ceremonies. And I, I love the line about, you know, Bach, the IOC president saying, we did it together. And there's like lukewarm applause, right? Which is kind <laughs> of this warm and tepid response to this entire games. I think I talked to many athletes, you know, before they went over and there was this kind of feeling. I talked to some volleyball players who, um, you know, were first time Olympians and super excited to 
to go only to be told like, okay, do you have cards? Like, what are you going to do on your downtime? And then feeling like it's just another, like, obviously the Olympics and it feels differently once they were there, but like going into it, it was like prepping for another tournament in terms of considering these restrictions. And I Mm -hmm. think that managing, especially without support systems, which is huge. We've documented, I talked about, I think last time I was here, some of the barriers for, um, support systems, some of the issue with like nursing infants, um, with um, family members and what that means um, for emotional support, which of course became a relevant storyline. One of the most enduring moments I think is Simone Biles return to beam after needing to pull out of the um, all around finals and the team finals and the other event finals um, and talking about and opening up a conversation about mental health. And I think that that moment resonates for me multiple Mm -hmm. reasons. One, because it opened up that conversation, but two, one of the things that Simone said was how nervous she was going back to the Olympic village after she had to pull out of the team finals and how she felt like like embarrassed and how she walked into the village and so many people came up to her and said thank you and I think that that moment is like even with the restrictions and even with the way that the village and in the city is not open to athletes there were still connections being forged and one of the things that you could pick up because there was less sound is some of the biggest voices you heard were athletes cheering on each other especially in gymnastics where you heard them all cheering for each other um the loudest sound almost from uh, from those gymnasiums. And so I think that um, that is one of the things that I return to is certainly the, the resilience of the athletes who have had to be resilient going into a pandemic games that already made them, you know, deal with a training for an extra year um, where many people found that to be quite difficult, both mentally, physically, um, and otherwise. Yes, Matoko Rich, do you think athletes' willingness, Simone Biles, but even a couple of others to publicly acknowledge uh, their mental health struggles will sort of start a sea change uh, in terms of the culture of athletes and what they're expected to do and be for us? Well, I think there's a great hope that that will be the case. I I certainly think it depends on which country and and which sport, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there were 206 um, National Olympic committees that were represented at the Olympics and many people come from different cultures. And, you know, I I think for sure, Simone Miles has opened up a conversation in the United States and also before her, after the French Open, there was Naomi Osaka. Unfortunately, um, she didn't Um, make it past the third round in Japan. So there wasn't as much of an opportunity for her to talk about the same issues, but I think it will certainly, I mean, there's no question that Simone Biles, the best women's gymnast in the world, or perhaps of all time, talking about these issues so openly and honestly um, has got to start a conversation, you know, whether that will be a worldwide conversation or whether it be limited to gymnastics or the United States. I mean, perhaps Mira's better positioned to answer that question than me, but I mean, I think a lot of people really hope so. I mean, the other thing that, um, uh, bouncing off this point that Amira made about people, the the athletes cheering for each other, and David might have a better perspective from having covered so many Olympics, but it really stood out to me, and I think a lot of other people covering those moments when the athletes from different countries were supporting each other. So there was this really touching moment um, in skateboarding when one of the Japanese boarders, uh, I think it was in the park event, um, she fell and um, almost immediately after she came out of the bowl, the, um, her rivals like hoisted her up on their shoulders and were carrying her around and cheering her. And that was just such a great moment yes. of kind of support, not just from her own teammates, but from other people who were competitors. And we saw several moments like that that really stood out during these games. We're talking about the 2020 Tokyo Olympics a couple of days after closing ceremonies with Matoko Rich, Tokyo Bureau Chief of the New York Times, David Wharton, sports reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor in History and African American Studies at Penn State University, co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down, and author of the forthcoming book Can't Eat a Medal, The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. We'll talk more about it with you and hear your impressions after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking back at the Tokyo Olympics that closed last Sunday. 
Athletic feats, triumphs, upsets, displays of courage, laughter, and pain. That's something the Olympics can always deliver, but it was not without its tensions and controversies. And we want to know what stood out to you. You can tell us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. What was your experience watching the Olympics this year, the notable moments for you? What do you think is the value of the Games, and what should the Olympics look like in the future? We're talking with David Wharton, sports reporter for the Los Angeles Times, Matoko Rich, Tokyo bureau chief for the New York Times. Both were in Tokyo covering the Olympics. Amira Rose Davis is with us, assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University. And David Wharton, let me get your moments that really stood out to you. The uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, you know, not just the weird things, but there was a lot of really amazing <laughs> athletic performances going on out there. And and one of the things uh, were the 400 meter hurdles in track and field uh, for both men and women. Um, you know, for the women, uh, Sydney McLaughlin of the U.S. beat out Dalila Muhammad, another American runner, uh, and set a, broke her own world record. And then for the men, uh, there was what I think was one of the most historic races in the history of the Olympics. Um, I heard people saying it was sort of Bob Beeman-esque, referring to the, the long jumper who set that amazing record in mm -hmm. Mexico City in 1968. But uh, mm -hmm. that was uh, here in Tokyo, it was Karsten Warholm of Norway against Rye Benjamin of the U.S., uh, two very, very fast runners. And it was looked upon in track and field as the race and it, and it delivered. Um, uh, Rye Benjamin broke the world record, uh, but Karsten Warholm went even faster and uh, <laughs> broke this 46 second uh, barrier in that race. Never been done before. Huge, huge accomplishment. Incredible race. Um, so those were two things that really stick out in my mind. And, and, you know, we talked about Simone Biles before. Suni Lee stepping forward and winning the all around gold uh, was an amazing moment uh, to watch her do that. Um, and, uh, you know, you had Tom Daly, the British diver who not only won the first gold in his long career, but was also kind of an instant uh, hit on social media because he would uh, be in the stands between events, uh, knitting cozies for his medals. Uh, that was kind of a big deal. So it was, uh, there were, there was, you know, despite the strangeness and, and some of the sadness that was there, you could feel it. Um, there were amazing athletic performances. Yes. Uh, well, this listener writes, I was on a late cross-country flight last week for a family emergency. I was sad and stressed, and I started clicking through TV channels, and I landed on the men's diving events. I watched without sound, mesmerized, as diver after diver flipped and twisted and spun in five-second masterpieces. It was deeply calming to watch such acts of beauty. Later, I looked up the athletes and learned that Kaoyuan won the gold. I am curious to know more about him and the Chinese team. Amira Rose Davis, one of the things that was brought up quite a bit with these games was the fact that they achieved gender parity, though I'd love to get your take on that. We know that of the 11,000 athletes or so, I think for the first time, 49% were women. Um, there were more mixed relays and so on. But, but how do you feel, especially in light of some of the things that did come up during the Olympics, like gymnasts' uniforms, or actually uh, even not only that, but uh, beach handball players' uniforms, things like that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think for many of these conversations surrounding the Olympics, um, for people uh, who think critically about the games and also want to center and, and, and celebrate athletic achievements and the athletes themselves, you always have to live in this like conversation that's um, yes and, right? Mm -hmm. That it, it can hold things multiple, <laughs> multiple things at the same time. And I think for me, a lot of times it's like, sometimes I feel like we're celebrating the lowest of low bars. I mean, this pandemic games, right? Like we were just saying in the earlier section, like we didn't have a big catastrophe, but that, like that's, that's a pretty low bar, right? <laughs> and I feel the same about this, like pro proclamations of how these like were the 
that's the most yeah. gender parity we've seen at the games. It's like, oh, we almost got to half, right? Um, and it's it's laughable to me because just six months ago, um, women only made up seven of the 35 seats of the executive committee of the Tokyo Games, right? Just six months ago, you had another ouster of, of um, uh, somebody who was saying, hey, like the women are too emotional to be in administrative positions in the games, right? You have ongoing issues in terms of um, both at the IOC level and, at, in, and in those federations about uniforms, um, about nursing infants, um, about swim caps for natural black hair, like all of these mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. to me are what is left, what stands in that gap between, um, you know, patting oneself on the back and like still having work to do. And I think that um, it's absolutely fine to say like, like this is this is good. Like we've made changes, you, we've changed uh, the c- weird canoe, like whatever the canoe thing was that created gender disparity because like women couldn't canoe certain things, right? They changed the weight classes in boxing. They added mixed relay events. Like it's great to say like, hey, this is yielding um, more gender parity and to continue on that path, but to do so without saying, here's where we're still falling short. And I think that from the women athletes that I spoke to, that was they were standing in that gap where they were watching these headlines and then feeling like continued, uh, you know, just no, like we're not there and we're not going to stop and celebrate like we are. Um, but certainly I think there's stuff to build off of from these games. David Wharton, you had written about Laurel Hubber, the New Zealand weightlifter, about how LGBTQ issues were bigger this time. You had more trans and non-binary athletes competing and winning medals. And I guess the question for me is, as as athletes become more prominent um, and winning medals, you know, do you think that that will provide for greater recognition, resources, and, and better treatment down the line? I think Amir is exactly right when she talks about that gap. And I think the gap primarily exists between sort of the administration of sport and the athletes. And, you know, I mean, when you look at the IOC being sort of an old white men's club, which it has been forever, um, for at some point, they can't hold back the charge of women winning so many medals and providing so many amazing performances. Um, They can't hold back LGBTQ and transgender, especially athletes. And this is something they're wrestling with, um, and they have for a long time. They can no longer ignore it. Um, they're very slow to react, uh, but they have to react. And so we had a situation where we had this uh, transgender wrestler, we had a transgender non-binary making their second uh, appearance in the games. They weren't open uh, for Rio, um, uh, so we didn't know about it at the time. Um, but when you have those sorts of performances coming to light, um, you know, again, I don't know how that's going to sway public opinion, but certainly in terms of the International Olympic Committee and the international federations that run all these sports and, and hopefully even the National Olympic Committees that, that pick the teams in each country, they, they just can't turn away anymore. There's too much of this going on and, um, and they're being forced to sort of join the modern world. Well, Anne writes, definitely the Dutch runner Svan Hassan, who fell down during... Er- fell down behind everyone, got up and went on to win her heat, then later took the gold in that event. She essentially practiced coming from behind and winning, also Suni Lee winning the women's all around, and Simone Biles putting safety and her team first when she began having trouble. Loved former dancer Valerie Altman's winning discus throw, so elegant, it really is like a dance. Love how she talked about applying skills from a different field to her sport. Plus, lots of high-achieving female athletes in their late 20s and 30s wish it had been easier to stream the sports. It was oddly hard to just figure out how to watch or re-watch various competitions and gave up. This other listener writes, For me, this Olympic shined a light on the vulnerabilities and courage of the athletes, the strength and diversity of the U.S. women and the medals won by smaller countries. Matoko Rich it really did shine a light on the vulnerabilities too, as well as as the courage, as this listener says. I was moved by a piece that you had done where you were talking about how Japanese athletes, you know, who fell short of gold, have apologized profusely, even sometimes after they, they won 
silver. And, and I know that apology can be viewed as a social convention in Japan, but, but was there more behind that this time, do you think, in terms of the apologies and the tears? Well, I think there probably was a sense that the Japanese public um, before the Olympics had been pretty opposed to hosting the games in the middle of a pandemic. And there was a lot of anxiety about whether or not the Olympics would bring uh, a super spreader event. And as David has mentioned that that didn't happen, but you know, right now Tokyo is experiencing and all of Japan is experiencing record high rates of infections and the Delta variant has really taken hold here and vaccination has been very slow. So I think the Japanese athletes must have been aware of the opposition in the country before the games, you know, that public sentiment swung around a bit or quite a bit actually during the games, people were excited about the Japanese metal hall was quite good and watching the games um, on television. But I, I know that they must've been aware that the public had made a lot of sacrifices to host the event and that there had mixed support. So there may have been this sort of extra feeling of like, we really have to deliver because of all that the public has given up for these games. Um, and there had been an enormous amount of pressure, not just for the Japanese athletes, but everybody. But because as I wrote that this is a cultural norm of how you express gratitude, that, that it came out in, in, in apologies, but there was so much pressure to deliver for these games because mm -hmm. everyone was aware that how much people had sacrificed and how difficult it was. Um, and that they'd all waited an extra year, right? I can't imagine, um, for the athletes, what it must have been like to have to train for one more year to get to Tokyo and all the things that the hoops that they had to jump through to get here. Um, so I think that that certainly had to be weighing on athletes' shoulders. Again, Matoko Rich's Tokyo Bureau Chief for the New York Times, David Wharton, a sports reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and Amira Rose Davis, co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down, an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University. And if you want to join our conversation reflecting on the games just passed, you can do so by giving us a call at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. What were the notable moments for you? You can also tell us on email at forum at kqed.org or tell us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Let me go to caller Ed in Pleasanton. Hi, Ed. Hi there. Hi, what's so, on your mind? Um, yeah. I've been, I've been hearing uh, an ever-growing chorus of people saying that maybe we should just ditch doing the games. Um, I mean, I, I think they spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in these cities every two years. That's really money that we could be doing to, to help the health of the world. Uh, I think, you know, why not just have one or two cities, get them set up to have the Olympics, and just go there every time instead of wasting all this money? Mm. Uh, Ed, thanks. Amira Rose Davis, let me get your reaction to what Ed is saying. I mean, these Olympics are so disruptive to cities. And, and as we saw in just this very last one, the benefits they were able to reap were incredibly limited. Yeah, absolutely. And let's, let's just be clear that the benefits that they're able to reap uh, in a non-pandemic year are also not thing. Yeah. Um, so they has long been a losing money venture, despite the, you know, Recording of the games and promising of jobs and infrastructure, et cetera. We know that the Olympics um, comes with displacement. It comes with um, removal. It comes with increased militarization. It's not a good look for the home team. It's, it's really not, which is why you hear these chorus of voices. And I do think that they are ringing louder this year. Um, if we go back to those opening ceremonies and even the closing ones on the television broadcast, without the people in the area, you could hear the protesters on the outside. Um, and so I think some of those cracks began to come through. Now, Ed, uh, I, I, I hear you echoing what many people have started to say, which is like, I think Mina comes says like, hey, let's just build the Olympic Island and have facilities there and just each nation can take turns hosting it there. And that way we can do away with some of this stuff. And I think that that in an ideal 
world where the IOC would not still be in charge of that might be a really usable thing. And I and I um, invite everybody into this conversation where we can actually talk about the utility of the modern games and and through a tech standpoint, you know, uh, to that point about coverage, right? Um, in in a year where we've been more globally connected than ever, I think people were starting to take notice just how American centered the U.S. NBC broadcast was. Mm. Um, I think that the streaming issue. I mean, for those of us who have to report on this and we're getting up at three my time and central time for live events and then catching it again at the end of the day have thinking about where do we go from here in terms of tech um, and then certainly these bigger conversations about actually sitting and grappling with the costs to the cities the harm it does and the pandemic has revealed what people have been talking about since you know, for multiple Olympic cycles. Um, and, but maybe we're, we're ready now to have a, a bigger uh, kind of conversation about it and maybe think about uh, solutions moving forward that aren't such a, a drain and, and aren't as harmful um, to athletes, to fans, to spectators, to cities alike. Well, Aaron writes, I was impressed by the camaraderie and sportsmanship of the skateboard athletes. They seem just as enthusiastic about their competitors' performances as they were their own. Such a refreshing change from our zero-sum, win-at-all-costs sports culture. Sort of underscores the point Matoko Rich was making earlier, David Wharton, about um, seeing them hoist the, the skateboarder on and, and support each other so much as being a real high point of the Olympics. I have to say it was really fun watching skateboarding and surfing make their debuts at the Olympics. You know, sports that really have their roots in California. Wondering what that experience was like for you, David, having covered so many Olympic Games. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, the you know, Amira was talking before about about the Olympics and moving around and not moving around. I mean, there are less than a handful of cities that could really afford to do this without building all the all the venues, which is where the cost really really goes sky high. And and uh, it's all it, the reason they don't do that. And the reason they keep moving around is that the IOC is trying to always gain more fans. Their viewership is growing older and older. And so at the same time they're adding these sports that they hope will, will you know, bring in a younger generation. And, and California's mm -hmm. played a huge role in that. Uh, um, when we look at beach volleyball, uh, that was kind of looked at as an afterthought in Atlanta and it really took off. It's become one of the more popular sports in terms of viewership. And uh, they're following that game plan with, with surfing and skateboarding. And these are, these are lifestyle sports. I mean, you talk to the athletes and, uh, you know, they say, hey, this isn't this, you know, we haven't spent our lives trying to get to the, the to the Olympics like a lot of athletes and other sports do. Uh, well, this is just what we do. And, and we are going to support our friends because that's sort of the core of, of skating and surfboarding and beach volleyball to an extent is, is going out there and being with friends on the weekend or whenever and, and doing these things. And I think that's why you see a different sort of atmosphere among the athletes. Um, because they grew up doing a cultural and a communal thing that other athletes and other sports didn't. Um, and so, you know, California's uh, a big role in that, obviously, but it's, it's nice to see that kind of change at the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, do you think California's influence is growing? We just, we're coming up on a break, so just 30 seconds there. But. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I think that, you know, part of the advantage that, that whatever's going on here has is that it has a huge media industry behind it. And, and that again is where it's very, very attractive to the IOC uh, to, to try to add a sport that can, that can have Hollywood behind it. <laughs> well, we'll have more after the break, reflecting on the 2020 Olympics with David Wharton, Matoko Rich and Amira Rose Davis. And you can join the conversation 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us forum at kqed.org or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're reflecting on the 2020 Olympics with sports reporter for the LA Times, David Wharton, New York Times, Tokyo Bureau Chief Matoko Rich, and Penn State University's Amira Rose Davis, also co-host of the podcast, Burn It All Down, and author of the forthcoming book, Can't Eat a Medal, The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow. And let me go to Gabby in Daly City. Hi, Gabby. Hi. Um, I just feel that um, applying wokeism to every single aspect of our lives has become a little bit ridiculous. Um, there are thousands and thousands of children and teenagers that train for the Olympics um, and it's something that they look forward to. College athletes, something that they look forward to. And cities are vying to host the Olympics. And yes, there are economic issues and there's displacement issues, but there are issues all the time and we're not going to solve all of them. I personally really enjoyed the opportunity to sit down in my, with my girls and show them all of the amazing, powerful women um, doing amazing, powerful sport uh, in a way that we don't get to see on a daily basis. Uh, and I certainly would not want to take that away from uh, any future children. My my children definitely got a lot out of seeing the female athletes. Um, and yeah. I just, I, I think it's a beautiful event. And, uh, you know, it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Um, but it is a beautiful way of getting um, the world together uh, every couple of years to celebrate sport. And this year we really celebrated women and, and the amazing work that the female athletes did, and it was beautiful. Uh, Gabby, thanks. Matoko Rich, certainly one of the pressures to put the Olympics on came from athletes who who really wanted to participate. I don't know that um, wokeism, as Gabby, would, Gabby is saying here, would be anything that would preclude athletes from participating. I, I think it's more about putting just a, a critical lens on some of the aspects of the Olympics that really showed themselves to be... Uh, less than pristine, I guess, for lack of a better word. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the pressure that Tokyo felt to do this in part because of that. Athletes wanting to, right. to well, have their chance. Well, yeah. I think, I, I certainly think in response to, to Gabby, um, Amira said it best earlier when she said it's yes and. You can have all of those things that she was talking about, that that sort of feeling of inspiration and wanting your children. And, you know, I have a daughter too, and it's awesome to be able to show um, both, and I have a son, I want him to see great, powerful women athletes too. And I think it's amazing. Um, but you also want it. And I think we'll see these issues come up with the Paralympics too, right? That you want that sort of sense of inspiration, not to just be once every two or four years, you want it to penetrate into the society. So, I mean, I certainly know Japan best. So, um, they're, they're, you want to know that that it's not just the elite athletes that are getting to enjoy this, but that all women. But to answer your question about the pressure that Tokyo felt, I mean, certainly there was a contractual obligation with the IOC that they couldn't escape. So that was part of it. But yes, there was definitely this sense, I think, about among the organizers that they wanted to do it for the athletes, because at the end of the day, who else was it for? As we started the conversation, um, there weren't spectators in the stands. There weren't a lot of the benefits that normally might accrue. Um, to a city, despite, you know, all of the issues that both Amir and David have talked about that sometimes those issues, even if you ha don't, if you do have spectators and international visitors, it's still um, a major cost to the city, but still none of those benefit, you know, to the extent that there are benefits, they didn't accrue to Tokyo this times. Um, so in, to the extent that they felt the pressure to do it, a lot of it had to do with wanting to provide this opportunity for the athletes. Well, this is Snow Rights. Can we talk about Raven Hulk Saunders with the game so lackluster in many ways? I love when a superstar athlete personality draws me in and captures my attention. Her mask, the shades. I never watched shot put before these games, but I watched Raven and loved her. Another listener says, can we talk about the athlete's role in social movements? Isn't it time for more protests to expose what the Olympics really stand for? Amira or David, any thoughts on, on Raven or on athletes' involvement in, in social movements and messaging. Yeah, certainly. And I, I just have to say, um, uh, all the love to Raven, who uh, lost her mother right yes. after competing. Um, and actually, if you are uh, wanting to know more about that, there is a, a support for Clarissa Saunders, who passed away on August 3rd. 
um, right after her daughter won the silver medal. Um, and then, and Raven has been a staunch advocate for many things. And you saw on the medal stand, Raven put up um, the X and said it is represents where uh, all kind of oppressed identities meet and talked about being an advocate right. for for the Black community, for the LGBTQ community, for um, mental health and mental health awareness. And I think that she is joined with many athletes who um, take very seriously their platform in order to also impact social change in, in a variety of ways, whether it's within their sport, whether it's within the Olympic movement, whether it's within their community or their country or a global endeavor. Um, there are some amazing organizing that happened prior to the games with global track and field athletes, for instance, who took advantage of the pandemic and got on Zoom together to talk about shared governance in the sports and the games and to Diamond League and, you know, in the intervening years before it goes on everybody's radar back at the Olympics. And I think that um, those moments, um, especially the athletes I work with, are some of the most durable and, and most notable on, on my end. Um, but I'll throw it to David to, to piggyback on that. Well. Sure. Well, uh, David, feel free to share. But I do think there's just this broader question of whether respect for athletes is growing. I mean, one of the things that we realize from watching these Olympics is just how hard it is for Olympic athletes to advocate for themselves because of so many pressures that they're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's a, obviously a long history of this. I think uh, people think of John Carlos and Tommy Smith in, in Mexico City raising their fists on the medal podium. Um, and, and this is something, again, that, that's been a sort of battle between athletes and the IOC. The athletes have won significant gains. Um, it was just a few months ago that the U.S. Olympic Committee dropped their, their sanctions against athletes protesting on the, on the podium and said, listen, you know, athletes deserve this opportunity to express themselves. And there's a great deal of hope that the IOC would follow suit. They did not. Uh, they, they relaxed. It's called Rule 50. It's a very controversial rule that uh, prohibits any kind of protest or demonstration. The only thing they relaxed was they allowed for athletes to express themselves before games or in the mix zone with media. I don't know why the IOC should have any control over the mix zone with media anyway. Uh, you know, uh, Amira mentioned the, the global uh, track athletes and I had talked to them a lot before these games. There was the expectation that there were going to be a lot of podium protests mm. in Tokyo. And I was really looking forward to seeing how that played out. Um, I had a lot of athletes telling me that they expected to do things there, um, that there were a lot of issues that they felt like they'd been muzzled on for too long yes. and they wanted to step forward. Um, unfortunately, I think, and I talked to some of those athletes in Tokyo and some of them had the opportunity and they didn't take it. I think for, to some extent, there was a, there was a sort of gratitude of just being able to compete. Um, but, but more so there was a feeling that with COVID and with everything that the Japanese were giving up, as was talked about earlier, to hold these games. I think everyone that I talked to turned it down a notch and felt like uh, maybe this wasn't quite as appropriate in this setting and that there might be settings in the in near future uh, where they would continue with trying to get their voices heard and, and being part of the public discourse in ways that they've never been in the past. So, uh, you know, uh, for better or worse, I think that's what happened in Tokyo. Well, um... This listener writes, the only Olympics coverage that mattered was Kevin Hart and Snoop on Peacock. The future of the Olympics is the replay snippet watched on YouTube. Hart and Snoop's commentary on those snippets is the only way I'll watch in Paris. Christopher writes, why do broadcasters concentrate on losing American athletic efforts when other countries' amazing athletes are winning at world-class levels? Would love to see a larger world-centric coverage, even while we thankfully look at individual achievements of historically marginalized athletes. And then this listener tweets, what about the Paralympics that are just getting started? A lot of these comments um, looking at how the Olympics are covered and how the Olympics are, are put on are making me think about what lessons Tokyo is learning for the Paralympics that are literally Motoko uh, rich on August 24th, right? That's when they begin? That's right. Are you hearing some of the same issues um, uh, that plagued the games that just passed coming up during the Paralympics? And what, if anything, is different? Well, I mean, I think it depends on what dimension you're looking at. I think in terms of the, the listener who's talking about, can we have a more globally focused media coverage? I mean, 
I'm the Tokyo bureau chief. So it, it is a little jarring during the Olympics. If, if you can switch over to NBC to see just how American centric it is. I mean, even when we talk about politics, I mean, one of the biggest incursions of politics and, and um, protest, if you will, during the games was Christina Timoskaya, the Belarusian sprinter. I mean, it wasn't, you know, an expressly political protest, but she applied for and gained asylum in Poland because she's criticized her coaches for using the games or hijacking the games for political purposes. And um, because the the uh, head of the National Olympic Committee from Belarus is the son of the dictator Lukashenko, and the coaches put her an event for which she had not trained, and she complained about that, and they try to forcibly return her home. And, you know, luckily she was able to, you know, asked for help from the Japanese police at the airport and then Poland granted her asylum. But uh, it's not it's not just American athletes that have political issues that they might want to bring up to, at the games. And, and I think the other elephant in the room that everybody was thinking about um, at the Olympics, not, not just for the Olympics or the Paralympics is the upcoming games in Beijing and what wow. many countries might do about that. And those questions were asked, you know, repeatedly at the IOC press conferences. Can you talk about the fact that you have granted these games to a country that's now been condemned for committing genocide? And are you asking athletes to be complicit in supporting this um, genocide by going to Beijing? And the Winter Olympics, they're, they're scheduled to open in February. I mean, this timeline i mean we understand why because of the delay of the 2020 olympics but it is kind of incredible um, when you think about all of these big and important questions you know being asked on such a truncated timeline amir rose davis wanted to give you a chance if you wanted to weigh in about para olympics and what you're noticing as we look ahead to those yeah paralympians have been very vocal um alongside olympians over the last few weeks um notably becca myers for instance has uh pulled out of the games one of the most decorated paralympians uh, from the united states in swimming pulled out of the games because her mom was denied the ability to go as her personal care assistant um the u.s opc um has uh told her that there was enough personal care assistance PCAs available for the swimmers um, of which there are like what near 30, um, 10 of whom have a visual impairment, including Becca Myers, who is both deaf and blind. And um, they've been talking about that. They've been talking about the way uh, the pandemic's impacting them. I think many uh, Olympians and Paralympians um, are calling attention to, you know, the, the waivers that they had to sign, um, the IOC waivers that both talks about COVID, but also extreme heat. Um, it's hot. <laughs> and yes. uh, which is why the last games in Tokyo in 1964 were in October. Um, but, you know, I think that they are right alongside their, you know, Olympic peers talking about these kind of structural issues um, as well. Um, and then I think on top of that, uh, every time we get into the cycle, Paralympians are also talking about what support feels like, which is not kind of like inspiration porn, like, you know, sob stories, but it's like, hey, we're athletes, right? Like we train, we compete, we have to earn our spots. And I think that there is um, a push, even in, as we do these kind of Olympic wrap-ups and retrospectives, um, you know, I saw uh, David was tweeting out and, and um, you know, uh, the coverage that has started in many places. I know for us on Burn It All Down, uh, we'll have our Paralympic weeks. We'll re-air uh, our interviews with Paralympians that we did at the beginning of COVID where they were already talking about what it looked like to think about pandemic and disability in sport together. We'll re-air our coverage of uh, somebody from NBC who talks about how you shoot the pair games and how you explain classifications in a quick way. And I think that there's a lot of content to dive in there. Um, and, and a lot of stories to be told, a lot of athlete, uh, athletes to highlight. I mean, I think it's always a fight for um, the Paralympics to get the space it deserves. And, and I'm hoping, I'm, I'm already happy to see a lot of the coverage that is already coming out. Um, and so the games start in what, two weeks. Um, and so I think we get a few run-ups coming. And um, this is the first year they're going to be earning them as much. They're going to get the same resources from 
the IOC as the Olympians. And I think that's huge. And I think that we should definitely uh, continue to focus on the Paralympians and their needs and what they are talking about in terms of similar concerns and where their concerns diverge or deepen or extend um, from the um, Olympians that we've uh, just seen. We're talking about the Olympics. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me see if I can squeeze Lynn from Dublin in here. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Are you there? I'm. I'm here. Go right ahead. You're on. Yeah. Um. I was really. No. I was really confused as to the coverage of the women's volleyball um, gold medal round. Um. They had played the ROC and the men's the men's ROC and French um, gold medal round in fall. They showed the whole entire thing. And then they cut to the women's after that, and it was already like 11 to 3, so we missed part of that match. Went, they won, they showed like winning the match, and then they cut it again. Mm. And we didn't get to see the second one at all. And then um, when we went back to the third set, um, they cut that again. So here we've got gold medalist women that, that we all had been following, and they didn't show the entirety of the game, but they showed every single minute of the gold gold medal round for the men for the ROC against France. Well, um, Lynn, you are not alone in being frustrated by coverage. We had talked a little bit earlier, too, just about gender parity and how deep that really goes in terms of coverage, resources, and support, because those all are so tied together. But let me share a few more reflections from listeners This listener writes, um, while I love the unity of the Olympics, I'm disappointed every year by the television coverage. It is so U.S. centric rather than coverage of all of the athletes and embarrassing to me. Cameron writes, in response to your guest's comment, it must be stated that the women's beach volleyball athletes are forced to wear outfits that are skimpier than what is available in a Victoria's Secret catalog. This is a significant reason for viewership, but also a form of objectification. A listener writes, just wanted to call out how amazing sport climbing was. Steven didn't even expect to watch it, but was hooked. Loved the puzzle aspect, the collaboration competitors did in solving them, and just really fun to watch. Hilariously, NBC gave it no coverage. We have less than a minute left, but I will end with you quickly, Amira Rose Davis. Did you enjoy watching the Olympics? Because David and Matoko were both there, but did you enjoy as a viewer watching it this time around? Yeah, I mean, sports is seductive. I love sports, so I study it. Um, I love sport climbing as well, um, but then also did not love that they rolled three subdisciplines into one because there's people who work their whole life specializing on one part of that. It was wild. Um, but I I love, um, you know, 4 a.m., you'll catch me weeping at the end of the men's try or fencing or badminton. Um, yeah, I love it. Um, but I think that that's why we push it to be better because um for the athletes for us for everybody you know uh, i think there's room to grow and improve and to take the joy that we get from it and and then push on well thank you all for your reflections amira rose davis is assistant professor of history and african-american studies at penn state university matoko rich tokyo bureau chief at the new york times who stayed up late to be able to talk with us so appreciate that matoko rich and david wharton sports reporter for the los angeles times long time covering olympics and of course covered the 2020 olympics in tokyo thanks to our listeners for sharing their reflections also thanks to judy campbell and blanca torres for producing today's segment you've been listening to forum i'm mina kim Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.